0: I'd like to open this evening's talk by having us all just take a moment to sense our aspiration. Uh, And that's the intention for these moments or minutes of the Dharma talk and for this day and for this retreat. So if you will, just let these moments be one, as if you could whisper your aspiration as a prayer your own Buddha nature what matters what do you care about for these moments these days The subject of tonight's talk is desire and the awakening of our hearts. And it has to do a lot with aspiration because I'm going to be approaching desire tonight in the way that how does desire in its deepest and purest expression bring us to practice and awaken us? One of the things that we've noticed as teachers, in terms of watching how practice is going, is that people here are doing a lot of different things, if you were talking about doings. Just different kinds of practices, really. It's amazing. We're under one roof, and there's concentration practice on the breath, and then there's moment-to-moment mindfulness. And then some people are doing the Brahma-viharas, and others are exploring with Tonglen, There's a whole range going on, looking into awareness. Who am I? But the common denominator is a shared aspiration and sense of awakening that has two distinct flavors. And one of the flavors is that in this becoming quiet and letting go of the story, there is a sense of emptiness, a realization that there really isn't some one here that's manipulating the controls and there's a a freedom that comes with that, an openness and then the other flavor is that of love that our hearts are getting tenderized and different times one flavor may be more predominant than the other our practice is a blend of these two It's been described that what the mind experiences as emptiness, the heart experiences as compassion. Sometimes these two wings or flavors are described in terms of the masculine and feminine archetypes. And that can be helpful, but it also can be misconstrued, kind of setting one against the other as better or worse. Someone sent me this after I gave a talk on these archetypes. Do you know what would have happened if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men? They would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts. Now this is a little in response to the question that came up this morning (laughs) at at the question-answer period, which if anyone wasn't there, had to do with the feminine voice and where was it and how is it in our practice. And it's interesting because the language of one of the flavors and wings of awakening is different than the language of the other, often. these different languages can lead to confusion, and I find this particularly so in the realm of relating to desire. What I'd like to do is read you a few different expressions of dharma that reflect these distinct wings. It's all about desire. Craving, also thirst, greed, desire, gives rise to dukkha, by understanding and relinquishing desire, we become free from suffering. In a different language, the abandoning and destruction of desire and craving is the path to nibbana. And then we have Suzuki Roshi. What is your deepest longing? Follow your heart. It's like follow your bliss kind of thing. Then on the other side, again, the great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences. And then again from the Tibetan tradition, within desire are the seeds of love and freedom. What is considered the poison is the medicine. Like Rumi's, the cure for the pain is the pain. And then the Dhammapada. No sickness like the hunger of the heart extinguish this thirst. And then I'll end with Rumi. Rumi from the urgent way lovers want each other to the sannyasins' search for truth all moving is from the mover every pull draws us to the ocean now if we're broad-minded we can include these all and in some intuitive way know they fit together but it's very easy to just take one out of context and have some misunderstandings and the shadow side of of the wisdom tradition can be an aversion to desire and the shadow side of opening and letting the source of loving that's in desire come up can be attachment being totally immersed and identified. So desire is this big huge energy that every culture and every religion has addressed with huge amounts of guidelines and interpretations and making meanings. And there's constant misunderstandings. I I like to read these. These are some uh, answers were given on Bible knowledge. The seventh commandment is, Thou shall not admit adultery. (laughs) (laughs) The Jews had trouble throughout their history with unsympathetic genitals. (laughs) A Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. (laughs) (laughs) It's really easy to create an adversary out of this basic life energy, this idea that desires in some way the obstacle to our spiritual freedom and then go to war with ourselves. And it's certainly the basic message of our... Western archetypal myth, the Garden of Eden, that desire caused trouble and was punished with being expelled. So it arises, there can be shame, there can be judgment, certainly the attempt to get rid of or cover from the eyes of others, our neediness, our desiring, our lust. A little boy opened the big and old family bible with fascination. He looked at the old pages as he turned them. Then something fell out of the bible and he picked up he picked it up and looked at it closely. It was an old leaf from a tree that had been pressed in between pages. "Mama, look what I found," the boy called out. "What have you got there, dear?" his mother asked. With astonishment in the young boy's voice, he answered, "It's Adam's suit." <laughs> In the most painful way, the struggle against desire creates dukkha, creates suffering. I'd like to read you a little from one of my favorite writers, Terry Tempest Williams, who's a naturalist and a philosopher and a poet. We've been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. And the fear of our deepest cravings keeps them suspect, keeps us docile and loyal and obedient, and leads us to settle for or accept many facets of our own oppression. But what kind of impoverishment is this to withhold emotion, to restrain our passionate nature in the face of a generous life just to appease our fears? A man or woman whose mind reigns in the heart when the body sings desperately for connection can only expect more isolation and greater ecological disease. (coughs) The two herons who flew over me have now landed downriver. I do not believe they are fearful of love. I do not believe their decisions are based on a terror of loss. They are not docile, loyal, or obedient. They are engaged in a rich biological context, completely present, they are feathered Buddhas casting blue shadows on the snow, fishing on the shortest day of the year. So tonight, how we can relate to desire in a way that awakens a deep and embodied wisdom. How we can relate in a way that honors the aliveness of of this basic energy and in a way that reconnects us with its source which is love it's been described that desire is the glue of the world if we pay close attention we can see the chain of events in which desire acts itself out and that's one of the really wonderful things of the kind of attention we're playing here that we can see with sense contact when something meets our senses we see or feel or hear and it's pleasant or unpleasant we can sense the arising of wanting, of desire and then out of that arising of wanting, that leaning towards there's that impulse, that intention to have or to get away from these basic events on this chain give rise to the whole world This is from what the Buddha taught by Rahula. The rising of desire, the thirst to exist is a tremendous force that moves whole lives, whole existences, that even moves the whole world. This is the greatest force, the greatest energy in the world. So desire, like gravity, is this great attracting force. It brings the coming together of atoms into molecules, people, into communities. It brings together galaxies. It has to do with the coherence and survival and reproduction, the ongoingness of life. So it's from that perspective that we can sense desire is not something to be embarrassed about, or to take personally, for that matter. But, as we know, it gets fixated. This great universal force of coming together gets fixated in a narrow way that can create suffering. And we can see it. It gets fixated on how to feel more comfortable or secure and then we can spend years or decades pursuing money or recognition in a certain way and forgetting a deeper sense of yearning. It can get consumed with being attractive or filling certain sense desires and then again, we ignore these deeper longings. It's interesting that the etymological, etymological root of desire is two parts. Now, one of them is from desiderare, and that means to cease to see. It's a sense of absence, and then the desire to seek and find the absent one. Another root, decidus, means away from a star. When in a state of desire, we feel away from our star and we desire to return to that intimate unity of belonging, being a part of. In both, there's the common theme that we intuit a unity, a belonging, but it's been severed in some way. And out of that arises this desire to reconnect. So there's a sense of feeling expelled from the garden in some way. It can be described as expelled from the womb of the cave, the cave of the womb, the garden, whatever. We feel that we're kind of out there, separate, and in some way are trying to rediscover what we belong to. It's our natural path. To look for belonging. This is Mary Oliver. Once only and then in a dream I watched while secretly and with the tenderness of any caring woman a cow gave birth to a red calf. Tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night in the fragrant grass in the wild domains of the prairie spring. And I asked them, in my dream I knelt down and asked them to make room for me. It's part of our humanness. It's part of our naturalness to seek connection, to seek belonging with each other in our world. And in the most pure expression, it's kind of awakened seeking, what we are trying to belong to is our original nature, our natural awakened awareness. And our practice is belonging to this moment and this moment because it's in this moment that we discover the truth of who we are. So this longing to belong, to truth, to love, arouses the aspiration that actually brings us to retreat, that brings us to spiritual practice, that brings us to any skillful means that allow us to quiet down a little and pay attention to what matters. And then what we find is that we come with this great aspiration to really be awake and be who we are, And then our wantings, our desires get waylaid. And so much of what we are working with at retreat is knowing our deepest longing is to be awake, but finding all these other levels of wanting and the flip side of fearing that seem to cause interference. D.H. Lawrence writes, Men are not free when they are doing just what they want, or just what they like. Men are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And there is getting down to the deepest self. It takes some diving. So in any given day we can find our desires on some of the levels of grasping, planning, what's going to happen when we get home, planning when we're going to have our shower, what we're going to do for a walk today, planning on how to be more comfortable in any slight way, going for pleasure. And then there's that remembering of a deeper level of aspiration, a real care about being present, being fully here. So we keep reconnecting with our aspiration and forgetting, which is the natural way. The Australian Aborigines have a way of describing it, that great spirit is dreaming us and all of material reality into existence. And that through our own personal intent, what feels like personal intent, We can join great spirit in co-dreaming. In fact, we're already doing it. That's what we are. But the trick is to become aware of it. So a central part of our practice is whatever is coming up, finding our way down to the deepest aspiration that's there. Now, this is very different than making desire into the enemy. Rather, it's trusting that built into desire, into the very energy of desire, is the sacred. And that it's by wisely being with that we drop into the purity of who we are. So the path starts with whatever arises in this moment whatever wanting or fearing is here. John O'Donohue puts it really beautifully. He says, to be able to recognize in the scattered graffiti of your desires the signature of the eternal. We start with the scattered graffiti. We start with whatever wave of wanting or fearing is there, trusting that these energies are the path. In terms of attitude, if we can meet what arises without that dualistic struggle, without fighting, without feeling swamped by what's there, there's an environment that allows for transformation. I love the stories of Melrepa who sings to the demons that he finds in, in the cave. He sings songs like, Oh, how wonderful it is you came today. You should come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. Or in other stories, he actually puts his head in the demon's mouth. Okay, take me, eat me. Now, this is very much in the Tibetan tradition, the sense of so trusting and honoring these energies that very, very wakefully, we absolutely open our arms to them inhabiting longing wakefully a Zen nun put it this way she said I meet life with my whole body moment after moment can you sense what that means just this moment meeting life with our whole body it's that quality of wakefully saying yes to what's here So we begin with this willingness that encounters what arises, and in this case, the arising of desire, with saying yes, wakeful, present, and as with the Vipassana instructions that we've been giving, the way that we meet this is to notice the storyline that's going on. To be able to drop below the storyline and Experience and examine the, ex- the sense of desire as it is in the body to not be caught in the story and not to resist what's there. Well, there's an art to that because what mostly happens is either we get caught in the story and there's kind of a pulling away, we get lost in the feelings and the story and identified, or there is such aversion to wanting that we push it away and go into some other aversive experience. So this art is how to really wakefully be with what's there. How to in some way bow, say namo or hello. Yes, I'm here. With Tonglen, which we've been doing a bit, a couple of afternoons, similarly, The practice is to have that openness that sees what's happening and is not caught in the story, but to directly feel the experience in the body. I'll tell you a, a personal story of working with this. It was one of my first retreats at IMS. I actually was staying for six weeks. And I came to retreat right after I had met someone and I was completely infatuated with this person. So I arrived at retreat and I had this real dedication to using my six weeks because I had a young son and it was very precious time and found that after a few days I couldn't even call it meditating in my mind. I was just lost in these obsessive fantasies. I was completely gone and I kept kind of call up this strong intent to be present and there was this stronger intent to just enjoy the pleasures of fantasy. So I, I was obsessed. And teachers, some, I remember a few talks there were different mentions of this kind of thing, of the arising of desire and all the skillful means. Nothing worked. People talked about VRs, Vipassana romances, and I thought, well, that's lightweight stuff. I mean, this is like industrial strength resistant to anything kind of obsession. So... <laughs> It was very difficult, so I'd I, I try to control it, and then I'd give in. It was like binge eating. I would kind of hold off, hold off, and then, then I'd be lost. And, it was, and, I, and I really judged it, and that was the most painful part. And to me, it, it really translated to, I'm just not a good meditator if this is where I'm living. Well, there was a pivotal interview that I had, and at that interview, it became clear how entirely contracted I was in aversion towards desire. And it was quite revealing because I could see it in more of a, a thematic way in my life. How quickly desire, in this case it was lustful obsession, but it could have been any other form of neediness, how quickly my system went bad, don't feel this, definitely don't show this, shut it down and how organized I was not to feel what was there. So I went back to the cushion, or to walking, and really opened to that aversion and let it be felt. And then what that did was made room for the obsession to be back there again, a little more unleashed. So then the practice became really saying, okay, fine, let me feel it fully. And as I was able to drop under the storyline and just open to it, it became just an amazingly enlivening experience. There were phases though. When I really opened to the longing that was there, there was a phase of feeling enormous grieving and loneliness for all the Eros that wasn't in my life. And then when I kind of let that be there, then the longing became even deeper and more full. Then it became this experience that had nothing to do with a person but rather just Eros and it filled the whole universe it was like my whole being was this universe of loving and I went for walks and I was in love with the trees and at IMS these chickadees come and land on your hand and I was having love affairs with these chickadees and it really just didn't matter and there wasn't even a self having a love affair there was just this in love feeling This aliveness is really the source of, for me, my obsessive fixation. I mean, the obsession underneath was coming from this longing for love, which was coming from some deep sense of love. I knew the garden deep down was there. This longing that we experience is at its most intense when we feel vulnerable. And I know from interviews, different people have described going into that feeling of being very, very lonely, feeling very disconnected in some way, feeling in some way small or separate. When we feel unseen, unloved, or lonely, the vulnerability is strong, the longing strong, and it takes a real courage to face what's there it's not our habit to really feel directly the unrecognized longings in our life. If, if we can't have something, then we either go into stories about it or try to shut it down in some other way, rather than just acknowledging, longing. It's like Mary Oliver writes to learn to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. So what we're learning is this kind of slow and difficult work of living out of our vulnerability wakefully. Not identifying, but feeling it fully. And it's when we do that that we're kept in the flow of our life. We're not practicing a Buddhism that's dry and one step removed where we've clinically observed what's happening. But we've stayed right where the energy flows, awakening inside that energy. This is Hafiz. In many parts of this world, water is scarce and precious. People sometimes have to walk a great distance. They carry heavy jugs upon their heads. Because of our wisdom, we will travel far for love. All movement is a sign of thirst. Most speaking really says, I am hungry to know you. Every desire of your body is holy. Every desire of your body is holy. Dear one, why wait until you are dying to discover that divine truth? it's not an easy way, but the longing for love becomes the pathway back into love when we bring deep attention our presence, our deep attention is this blessing that can transform and awaken what feels like a narrow kind of grasping into a deep sense of what we cherish one teacher said some time back that our problem isn't that we want, but that our wanting gets so limited that we hook it onto too little. She used to say, want to be fully alive, to be fully in love, to be fully awake. In this poem by Rilke, he lets God speak. You, sent beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Give me your hand. One of the ways of describing this wakeful presence of longing is prayer. And prayer is not always an understood word there's all these different descriptions but in this sense prayer is the voice of longing of a very enlightened or deep or pure kind of longing because our longing is to belong it's to feel whole there can be a sense of reaching out we might even call it reaching in or reaching beyond But there's a sense of reaching beyond the small self, opening to an enlarged field of belonging. This is really beautifully illustrated in the story of the Buddha's awakening. Jack referred to it last week, I'll just describe it briefly, that through the night under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha received the attacks of Mara of these energies of greed and hatred and delusion. And he received them with this open hand and open heart. And they were transformed in his presence. And Mara withdrew and the Buddha awoken. But by morning he was not completely free. Mara had not completely disappeared. So in the classic story, the Buddha calls on the earth goddess bear witness. He takes his right hand and he touches the ground. And this is a pivotal moment in the Buddha's myth of awakening. Because here, the Buddha's not meditating alone. He's not a self doing anything. He's touching and connecting with a larger sense of belonging, with the web of life. He's acknowledging in the deepest way that belonging, that non-separation. And in the same way, we're not struggling alone on a spiritual path. We're not trying to build spiritual muscles to fend off the adversaries. You know, that's the most shadow-side masculine take you can make of it. But you know what I mean. It's not an ego that's trying to master something. But rather... Like the Buddha touching the ground, our path is to open, to find again and again our belonging to this whole life, belonging to the whole. I love the way John O'Donohue talks about prayer. He says, prayer reaches outwards and inwards to unearth our ancient belonging. Prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. So when we're contracted when we have that natural getting small, feeling separate that's our conditioning to in some way bow, pray, or reach out might feel dualistic and yet it serves reconnecting. It can easily, if we're getting mental bring up that question well, who's praying to whom? Is the Buddha separate from the Earth Goddess? I was brought up Unitarian and the Unitarians had a joke that they used to address all prayer to whom it may concern. <laughs> In a similar way they described Moses receiving a Mount Sinai, the ten suggestions, you know. <laughs> this is trying to be the feminine side, no, no authority here. <laughs> We all have ways in our practice of reaching out. We all have ways of touching the ground, of discovering wider and wider circles of, of belonging. One yogi today, in an interview, who's facing a physical disease, described climbing up the hill out back there and beholding the beauty the trees and the grasses moving and he described it as pulsing with life and also noticing the dead trees and realizing and experiencing his being as part of all of that the dying and the living and the dying and the living nature does that for us we realize we're part of it's bigger than but we belong to in some way and then when we really open, it is who we are. i found that I have almost a tradition now, when I'm sitting a long retreat, there's several times that I'll get to the place of feeling enormous emotion or grief and always find my way out to some place that feels safe and beautiful and find some tree that in some way has that emanation of mother energy that I can lean up against. And there's this sense for a moment that I'm um, this little vulnerable being kind of crying and being held by a great mother tree. But then that kind of opens suggests just sensing tears and compassionate space. That there's room in these great skies here and in this earth for our tears and our love. John Seuss writes. To be of the earth is to know the restlessness of being a seed, the darkness of being planted, the struggle toward the light, the pain of growth into the light, the joy of bursting and bearing fruit, the love of being food for someone, the scattering of your seeds, the decay of the seasons, the mystery of death, and the miracle of birth. Each of us in our lives knows that way of reaching out in the realm of relationship with our friends. Perhaps feeling a little separate and discovering in the sense of here we are, that connectedness that we belong. The Buddha writes, our friendship, our companionship is the whole of this holy life. Some days we feel like strangers when our heart opens, we will realize that we belong just here. We belong to each other, to the earth and the trees. So we reach out. And here we reach out in these nonverbal ways of offering metta to the beings of our life and finding this sense of our heart just becoming boundless, becoming kind. In another interview today, Yogi described offering metta to her husband, feeling blocked and then opening with some kindness to her own sense of unworthiness or distance and then discovering when she then offered metta to her husband she could just look at him, really see him and see he was the beloved, really see the divine We love it when we can have our stories about ourselves and each other drop away and look and really see the sacred, see what's there. This is what Rumi called the friend, this beloved that's everywhere. Kabir called the guest. I've always been drawn to that word. And I've been trying to reflect on what it is about the word beloved that uh, works for me. Something about being love. And that it's kind of a blend of the personal, the sense of the beloved, and the universal. It's kind of like prayer, it's a bridge. And every path that I know has some way of invoking the beloved. In Buddhism, we call it taking refuge in the Buddha. And we might imagine the Buddha as the historical Buddha with those qualities of wisdom and compassion. Or we might imagine it more as just the awakened Buddha nature that is within all of us. But there's taking refuge. It may be in the Bodhisattvas, in Kuan Yin, in Jesus, in Mary. There are practices of invoking the beloved that are very visual. Some of you were with us when we did that the other day. For myself, I find that when I am feeling in some way separate and I call on a sense of the beloved, and it seems dualistic, as if there's this energy that's other than, and I'm not very visual, but I imagine it some sense of a, a radiant presence an embodied radiant presence in front of me that's really luminescent that's surrounding me with light and I even use the word I'll softly say in some way a prayer to the beloved then that energy seems to surround me but then again there's this dropping away of any self that's doing the supplicating or other that's answering the call There's just open, compassionate energy. Rumi writes, Lo, I am with you always means when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes, in the thought of looking, nearer to you than yourself. That which longs for love is love, arises from love brings us back into loving. So it's beautiful, this reaching out, because we reach out to who we really are. It kind of opens our nature, and we can sense in that that we can just relax and become that. It happens in a wonderful way with chanting. Same way, from the heart. It's just this offering of blessing, asking for blessing. I remember some years ago Ramdas describing being in a barn with a group of fellow seekers and they were chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare they were having a great time hearts opening, feeling flooded with that presence of love and one day his his father came in and he was just kind of watching them and listening to them and he stood there for a while and finally said so who is this guy, Hare Krishna anyway that you're singing to? (laughs) And why do you keep singing the same thing over and over again? I mean, it's a pretty tune, but enough already, you know. <laughs> in this offering of prayer, and this asking prayer, there is a quality of repeating, and it's the quality of repeating that spirals deeper and deeper into the pure essence of what our longing is. What we long for is who we are. In the moments that we connect with our deepest aspiration, we're connecting with the essence of our natural being. Rumi again. A strange passion is moving in my head. My heart has become a bird which searches in the sky. Every part of me goes in different directions. Is it really so that the one I love is everywhere? When we're practicing with these two wings of being aware of what's true and living fully what we love, our most basic way of touching the ground is belonging to this moment, of sensing what is true this moment, and then relaxing fully into what's experienced. So there's both this quality of knowing and embodied presence. a story Kabir was a shoemaker and as he worked he always repeated the mantra Ram 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 day in and out for 20 years then one day Ram appeared and Kabir said who are you and Ram said well I'm Ram and Kabir said well why are you here and Ram said why am I here you've been calling me for 20 years now I've come what do you want (laughs) so Kabir said well I don't want anything and then then Ram said, why have you been recalling my name so long? And Kabir just said, well, I just love repeating your name. So then, for years to come, wherever Kabir would go, he'd be followed by Ram and the sound, Kabir, Kabir, <laughs> Kabir. <laughs> Prayer is a practice of becoming still and listening to what we long for. As I mentioned earlier, they're layered. So it takes some patience, some real listening presence, to keep, in a very sincere way, dropping into what's true. We do that practice formally when we establish our aspiration before sitting, when we offer benefit of our practice. It's a stillness of pure attention that again in John O'Donohue's words opens us to the wisdom of our clay we really feel the wisdom of our earth body what we long for the challenge is that we don't often feel that sense of clarity or sincerity we know intellectually what we long for but it's not an embodied knowing. I had a client some years ago who saw a poster about meditation and it was about peace and it said breathe in, breathe out, smile and then at the bottom the words were Thich Not Hanh. He spent a whole year very devotionally repeating Thich Not Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, He thought that was the mantra that was going to be bringing him peace. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> I mean, he, he was this very sincere person, and it really wouldn't have mattered what he was saying or doing. But he brought that quality of sincerity in. Uh, sincerity is another word I really love. I, I think it's because I often feel like I know what's right and true, but there's some kind of a, a covering where I'm not feeling completely real in it. So the moments that my heart feels really tender and sincere are moments that I feel most connected to my nature. And, and my sense is that all prayer is like that. It's just coming down deeper and deeper into what feels real. I heard some years ago a description of what the meaning of sincere is. It means without wax... And in Europe, some centuries ago, they used to use wax to cover the cracks of plates and bowls and so on, so it's more like the authentic with the cracks and the messiness and all that, but real, sincere. In an absolute way, our life is seamless. There's, there's no reasons to do any ritual at any time, but there's this beauty about the rhythm of sleeping and then waking and sitting and walking as we're doing here, that really invites us in a creative way to practice prayer, to establish as we begin a sitting, okay, what do I really care about? What matters this moment? And there's like a gravitational pull that's created when we set our aspiration. When our hearts connect with what matters it brings it into life, it creates our universe, it creates our experience. <coughs> so I mentioned in the beginning this chain that out of our desire, which is really a neutral energy, intention and aspiration follows. And if our desire gets contracted by fear and clutches onto things, it reinforces separation when we bring mindfulness to our intention and then sit in that stillness and that sincerity, we will naturally drop into the more deep place of longing, what we cherish. Another way of describing this, when we touch what we cherish, is that we open this heart of devotion. We feel a very natural devotion to dharma, to spiritual life any moment that we're connected with the depth of what we long for, we'll then devote ourselves to that. We devote ourselves. And this space of devotion is not an abstract idea. It's very, very real in the moments, the way we can live our day here. We can sense it in walking, bringing quality of devotion into walking. And it's as if every step we're we're offering a blessing. Every step there's some sense of cherishing the sensations and the life and the experience in that step. And we can feel that devotion, that sense of offering and receiving blessings when we see the beauty that's around us. Some of us were standing outside this evening watching this almost full moon rising with its with kind of with that incredible radiance around it and it was just awesome. And there's a sense of being blessed in just beholding that and a sense of blessing of beholding that in the company of others. and a sense of blessing when we sit to eat and we really honor and sense the food and where it came from and the abundance that's here and a sense of blessing when we sip the breath when it becomes quite delicate and there's really a feeling in this moment that the breath too is the beloved that we treat the breath with that same tenderness of awareness that we treat anything in our life in the most simple way our devotion is to the sacredness of presence that we drop in this moment and then this moment and in a wholehearted way give ourselves to the moment you can sense right now what it means to belong fully to this moment This experience of devotion is wakeful and it's open-hearted, it's tender. Tolku Ergen described it this way, he described that what we discover is the spaciousness, there's clearly experience arising, passing away, no self to be found and the radiance of this emptiness is compassion It's love. And that's what we discover when our hearts are open in a devotional way. Naturally, it includes all beings. Because not only do we know what is true, but we rest in it. And in that resting, discover our connectedness with all life. So let's just take a few moments now, sitting quietly letting that sense of devotion and care for the moment be awake A strange passion is moving in my head. My heart has become a bird which searches in the sky. Every part of me goes in different directions. Is it really so that the one I love is everywhere? Practices together be of benefit to all beings. Thank you.